You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church. Hey, y'all. Hey, thank you for listening to Knowing Faith. We had such a good conversation around Genesis chapter three that it, it kind of went a little long. I'm going to blame that on JT's long-windedness. No, but but it, seriously, we really enjoyed talking about it. And it's so rich, we could have talked about it for hours. So we ended up making this into two episodes. So there's a part one and a part two. And so you can listen to part one. And then after you listen to part one, you can jump into part two. We hope you enjoy the discussion. This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. Good morning, y'all. Hey, how we doing? Good morning. Good, 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 good. You know, we are right on the precipice of Halloween, and uh, Lauren and I were joking around, like, what are going to be the popular Halloween costumes this year? Do you have any bets? I bet you're going as a family of turtles. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> man that turtles thing got a lot of play it took okay. on some life i don't know how i took some heat on that i feel like i got heat on the turtles that was wild <laughs> of course you did you, 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 just you were riding your hobby turtle and now everybody's got that image emblazoned in their brains forever whatever whatever <laughs> It's true. the The hobby turtle is uh, is now definitely a part of the uh, knowing faith lexicon. Um, uh, no, I think I I really imagine that the most popular Halloween outfits this year are going to be Joe Exotic and Carol Baskins from uh, Tiger King. Oh yeah, that'll happen. Right. <laughs> I mean, won't would... there be like. Like epidemiologists and stuff too, and yeah, like people sure. in hazmat suits. Little yeah, kids dressing as epidemiologists. <laughs> <laughs> I, I yeah, I think that we're gonna see. I'm really hoping that we get a uh, like a JT exotic Tiger King costume this year. I hope that you I hope that you go as Joe Exotic, but JT Exotic. I mean, you got the perfect name for it. You know, right. I, I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, well, what? I was going to say, Kyle, that's what you want your kids to ask you is, hey, Daddy, who are you dressed like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. It would be a hard one to uh, it'd be a hard one to explain with any sort of uh, propriety well, right. um, <laughs> or godliness <laughs> or godliness. That's true, too. Um, well, listen, uh, today we're talking not about Joe Exotic or Tiger King, uh, but we're talking about Genesis chapter three. And this is part of a much larger theme this season, exploring Genesis one through 11. Uh, and today we're going to look at Genesis three. Now, let me just tell you. We could we could spend a whole semester, a whole season in Genesis chapter three. There's that much there. So we're not going to be able to get into everything. And as always, we'll kind of be exploring it on the context of the show. We've done episodes that dealt with Genesis three in the past. We've done an episode on the doctrine of sin before. You can find that in the archives. You can find that in your feed. And so if you want to hear more about doctrine of sin, then we have covered it in the past. And I know for certain. We will talk about it again in the future. But today, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3. So let's just start with an overview of how we got here in the narrative. Where have we come from and where are we at now? Okay, so we begin with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What were some of the unique things that we explored in Genesis 1 and 2 that may be helpful for context and framing as we hit Genesis 3 today? So in those first few episodes and in the first few chapters of Genesis, we just made the really clear and important distinction 
of the creator and creature distinction, that there is a creator of the universe who's fundamentally different than everything he creates. He exists in himself. He's joyful in himself. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and uh, gloriously joyful, apart and separated from his creation. And then he, because he's powerful, and because he's God, he speaks creation into existence uh, in a way that is, is, uh, is, is powerful and dynamic, and what didn't exist now exists. And so the creator-creature distinctions helps us theologically to be able to sort through the relationship that God has between his creation and the relationship that us as creatures have with the creator and then the rest of creation, whether that be other image bearers or just the materialistic creation or even the immaterial creation that God has made. Yeah, and I think another important piece that you need when you're heading into chapter three is that because God made all things, all things belong to him and all things owe him their worship. And so I think sometimes what I've discovered is people can think that we are obligated to God because we sinned against him. Uh, And so like we owe him an apology like that sometimes I think people think of their relational um, status with him beginning at the point that they acknowledge who he is. But the reality is that our obligation to him begins in Genesis one. It's because he made us. And so I think in order to understand what's happening in Genesis three, you have to keep that in front of you the whole time. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And I think tied into that is we have to remember that our biblical anthropology, like who God did create us to be, doesn't begin in Genesis chapter three. It begins in Genesis chapter one, Mm -hmm. right? We don't, we, we're, we, uh, the fundamental beginning of the world when as it pertains to humanity wasn't broken image bearers it was image bearers of god yeah and genesis 3 is the story of how that gets complicated well and i think we've touched on this before in previous discussions but this is something that um really jt you helped me to see Uh, i wish i'd seen it sooner was that in order we we tend to to spend a lot of time talking about Genesis chapter three as we should. But if we don't first understand Genesis one and two, the way that we should, then we're going to be, we're going to be way off. I'd love to hear you just say a few things about that. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree with what you said and what Kyle said, but, but anthropology, the understanding of what it means to be a human begins in Genesis chapter one and not Genesis three. And if we begin in Genesis three and not Genesis one, that fundamentally changes what we think salvation is, what we think God is doing in the world, what we think it means to be a human being, who God is actually and how he interacts with his creation. And so some of the language that we used to use, I know we've used this before, but if you're a new listener to Knowing Faith, it might be helpful to revisit some previous language. The language that that Kyle, Jen, and I have used in the teaching environment of the training program at the village was dwelling, dominion, and dynasty. By the way, guys, I have another D word that, oh, I'm, prepared, no. that I'm prepared to launch, but I'm not oh, going to do it now. I'm not going to do it now. I'm going I'm I'm to hold it. Uh, some big, some, some big <laughs> unveiling of the fourth dimension. Yeah, yeah you got to be a part of the Storyline Institute next year. Oh, oh, there we go. <laughs> uh, but we also used P words to help people. So like presence, purpose, place, and present. And I already said presence. What, what, what are the four, Kyle? People, presence, place, That's right, people. Purpose. I miss people. And so just to give those quick definitions, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see God dwelling with his people. We see God's mandate to his people people to take dominion over the entire earth, which means both a specific place and a task that they're supposed to bear God's image to give him glory, worship, and honor in everything that he created. And they're supposed to do that from Eden then to the ends of the earth. And then of course, they're a dynasty of image bearers. We talked about this in a previous episode that it's actually quite scandalous that God would, uh, 
and, and as, as Moses writes down Genesis chapter one and two, that he would call you and I image bearers because in the ancient Near Eastern culture, it, that was reserved specifically for Pharaoh or for kings and queens. And so there's de- this democratization of dignity and worth and value and, voca- and uh, important vocational work. And so what we're going to see here in Genesis chapter three, and this might be the crux of the whole kind of switch in the plot narrative, is the kingdom of God, which is defined by dwelling dominion and dynasty, is functionally lost in Genesis chapter three. We lose the dwelling presence of God through exile. We lose our status as divine image bearers, not in terms of dignity, but in terms of of what we're able to do. And we no longer take dominion on God's behalf, but we're gonna take it on our own as we'll see in in the Tower of Babel. And and of course, continuing throughout the story of the Old Testament. And so really what, what I want people to hear is as we move into Genesis chapter three, what we have in Genesis one and two, Lots of it is just lost, uh, is now broken, is futile. Uh, And the story of the Bible moving past Genesis 3 is how God is going to restore dwelling dominion and dynasty in the kingdom of God. Well, that is not what I thought you were going to talk about. Well, tell me what I should have talked about. (laughs) Excuse me, I can't even talk because it's too early in the morning. Uh, I want, here's what I wanted you to say. Let's go. I can still say it. (laughs) No, um, no, the thing that really struck me was how, um, because we're so focused on Genesis chapter three, and today we're going to be, because that's what the podcast is about. Right. Um, we can forget the significance of the message of Genesis one and two, which is, um, this is how it was. And then right. Revelation, this is how it will be. Yeah. And so the practical implications of, of not having a good grasp on anthropology are that we, um, we keep trying to manage a sin problem, but we mm. don't point people to how it could be and how it should have been. That's right. Um, and so that, I just, that insight was so profound to me and it impacted um, mm. so many areas of my life, but in particular impacted parenting. Like mm. we were on a call, Jeff and I were on a call the other night where there was a question, it's a very honest question that I get a lot um, of uh, how do I, how soon can I, and how should I talk to my two and a half year old? That was the question, two and a half year old about, about sin. Like, how do I train them about sin? And, um, I understand that. Like we mm-hmm. want our children to know the Lord. We want them to recognize the problem of sin and, and respond, um, in, in repentance. Um, but, um, but the most important message for a very small child is actually Genesis one and two. That's exactly um, right. There's time for to talk about sin, but what children need to know first and foremost, before there's any conversations about sin, like the thing you should be repeating is not, Hey, you're a sinner. It's, Hey, I love you. You were made by God. Mm-hmm. You are deeply, deeply loved. Uh, and, and once they're grounded in that, then they're ready to begin to, you know, even developmentally, that's the first message that they're equipped to hear. Uh, and then as they grow the other, and I think as adults, we're, we're much the same way. We, we, we need to know, um, that we are uh, precious and we have value because God made us. Yeah. yeah. But Jen, I thought you were reformed and believed in total depravity. Oh, I'm joking. No, I'm joking. I'm saying I'm depravity for me. That's a big word. Yeah, no, no, but, but I'm really saying like, that's the response you're going to get. Don't I know. you believe in a real doctrine of sin? I know. Right. Of it, course, of course we do. Yeah. But, but like sin is one of those things that whether you're talking about this two and a half year old kid or us, as you grow into adolescence and then adulthood, it's a subject that you know more about than you ever wish you knew about, whether that's your own sin or the brokenness of the world around you. So if you don't have your doctrine of sin built on the doctrine of human dignity, value, love, and worth, you actually don't have a a biblical doctrine of sin. You have kind of a weird masochistic, I hate myself doctrine. But if you build a doctrine of sin based upon what, what was, 
and then what could be in the gospel, everything gets far more beautiful and, and lovely, and the biblical story begins to make much more sense. And, and it affects the way that we view the love of God itself. <laughs> Because it's not just our relation to God, it's his relation to us. And when we think about God's love primarily through the lens of Genesis chapter 3, then the only dimension of God's love that we see is grace and mercy, that he forgives sin. But that's not what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. It's not that God is not gracious and not merciful when he creates the world. It's that he creates out of the overflow of delighting love in himself, Mm -hmm. which means that as his people, we are intended to receive not just the gracious love that forgives, but the delighting love that fellowships. And Mm -hmm. that is very different because when you get to Genesis 3, it's not the horror and tragedy of Genesis 3 is unbroken fellowship. Yeah. And the rejection of God's rule and reign, you have to have both of those things. It's not just that we have disobeyed the divine judge. It's that we have ran, ran away from the good father. Mm-hmm. And those have to be held together. And I think a lot of times, particularly in a reformed subculture, in order to hit sin very hard, we really want to construe that the primary disruption of Genesis 3 is the defilement against God's holiness. That is very true, but it's not singularly true. It is balanced by the breaking of uh, and disruption of divine love, and that's tragedy. It's that's I don't know why we would need to. I feel like a lot of times there's an impulse to feel like, oh, that other side is kind of soft. It's, yeah. it's not soft at all. They're both really tragic, and we have to hold them together. Well, I think it can be. You know, like you see how this plays out in in um, in sort of I don't know if if popular theology is a way to say it, but in 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 in. Um, how am I going to say this? Look at the publishing industry where you've got books like Your Best Life Now, which, you know, people in the reform camp would just be like, what? You know, which is right. Like, you know, that's not that's not um, that's not the direction you want to go. But it's not so much that we're not saying to people, hey, life gets better when you're a believer. It's the way that we're saying it. Uh, and then conversely, so you got your best life now at one end of the spectrum. Like, why does a book like that get written and have so much popularity? I think is the question we should ask and answer. And I think in many cases, it's because on the other side of the spectrum, all there's been is you're a sinner and repent. You're a sinner and repent. You're a sinner and repent. And so it's not the right response, but it is a reflection of what's missing in the dialogue. And you need to have um, you have you need to have the beautiful vision um, next to this is why the beautiful vision is is hard right now. It's not, it's not a full reality. Um, but, and so, you know, you don't want hellfire and brimstone and you don't want your best life. Now you want the two of those things in the, in their best form operating together. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's move into an overview of what happens in Genesis three. We just start at the, at the top of this. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So we have introduced a new character into the plot line. And this character is going to play a very big role in Genesis chapter three. We have introduced the serpent and the serpent begins to speak to the man and the woman. He begins to speak to Adam and Eve, and he begins by asking a series of questions. Okay. So we're about to dive into all this, but you see that kind of the, 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 the arc here is that there's a, a conversation between the serpent and the man and the woman. That conversation leads to a, a real temptation, a temptation that's held out to the man and the woman. They, They seize that temptation. They move forward. They eat of the fruit of the tree uh, of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, And then from there, there is immediate consequence. Their eyes are open. They realize they are naked and ashamed. Um, And then they hear God walking and they scatter. God addresses them. 
Um, and there are, and we'll get into this in a minute, there are either curses or consequences, depending on how you look at the past. <laughs> I'm saying that because I don't know how many times Jen has publicly corrected me when I use, I've used It's not a language. correction. It's a nuance. Uh, and so depending on your take, it's curses or consequences that, that result from this temptation seized. And then you have at the end, you have a covering and an exile. So that's a little bit of the high level. Let's, so let's start diving down. Where do we begin? Who is this serpent? How has he arrived here? That's the first thing that happens in Genesis three. So what do we know? What do we not know? I mean, that's a hard question, Kyle, because the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of evidence. I mean, the serpent just kind of pops out of nowhere. We don't like, did God create this serpent? From where did the serpent fall? Why is he uh, challenging God's word and what God has told Adam and Eve? You know, one of the things uh, that we talked about in the training program, and I, I'm not sure where I land on this, but Greg Beal in his book on biblical theology introduces the concept that it's entirely possible that the fact that the serpent is even allowed to stay in the garden is a part of this first original sin. Yeah. It's not just that they would eat from the tree of the knowledge, from the tree that God instructs them not to eat, but rather, and in addition to the fact that their responsibility is to cultivate God's garden and to protect it from anything that would be evil or wicked. And they don't do that with the serpent. And so it's kind of this, I don't want to suggest that it is the original sin. And I don't think Beale is doing that, but it's a suggestion that the first task that they were called to isn't just to not eat from the tree, but it's also to cultivate God's sanctuary, his tabernacle, which is functionally Eden, which they failed to do. And so you should begin to see right here in Genesis uh, chapter three, verses one through, uh, I guess, four or so is, is already them beginning to sin in their failure to do what God has asked them to do. The CSB Life Council Bible provides biblical counsel and practical wisdom for pastors, ministry leaders, counselors, parents, couples, and any individual seeking practical wisdom through the application of God's Word. It includes more than 150 full-length articles on a wide range of topics and tough issues from respected Christian counselors and scholars. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. Visit csblifecouncilbible.com to get your copy today. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World as Seminary President Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. Yeah, I think that's a really good way of saying it because, and immediately how you started, which is we don't know very much. What we, mm -hmm. a few things that we do know, we do know that the history of the church, and it seems like the story of scripture identifies that this serpent is some sort of embodiment or incarnation or representation of Satan. And Calvin, um, I love Calvin on Genesis chapter. If you've never read John Calvin on Genesis 3, you should go do it. Because one, he's going to say some wackadoo stuff that you never think Calvin would say. And you're going to realize, wow, this was a man of his time. And uh, 
this is not helpful. But what he says in the beginning on verse one is this. He says, the revolt of Satan is proved by other passages of scripture. And it is impious madness to ascribe to God the creation of any evil and corrupt nature. And then he goes on to say, <laughs> I love this. We must now enter in on that question by which vain and inconstant minds are greatly agitated. Why did God allow Adam to be tempted? <laughs> Essentially, John Calvin saying, <laughs> if you're even asking the question, you are a vain and inconstant mind. And I, <laughs> I just love that he just throws it down like that. He's like, you know what? It's a really good question, but it's really a question that proves the point of Genesis 3, which you are a rebellious, terrible sinner. <laughs> But no, but like, I do think it's important to say, here's what we do know. We do know that the serpent in the garden is either representative of an embodiment of an incarnation of Satan or the satanic spirit. Yeah. Uh, and that is that where, where he came from. We don't know. We know that as Calvin said, it is impious madness to ascribe to God, the creation of any evil and corrupt nature. Right. Um, and we can say that this Satan, Satan or serpent has emerged uh, as a result of great evil and rebellion against God, P potentially the first rebellion, which would have happened in the heavenly host or the angelic realm. So is that fair, Jen? Anything to add to that? No, I think that's good. And uh, again, like we've talked about this elsewhere. I'm wondering, do we have show notes? Do you like how plugged in I am to the um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're on the sure. – uh, yeah, sure. We've got an intern doing those. <laughs> the, show, the show notes are always a name it, claim it kind of reality. Because yeah. well, I was going to say, this is, you know, there are, there are nice, concise things written about, you know, the why is the serpent there, and which is not to say it's a simple topic. But we've talked about that elsewhere, and I, would, I want us to get, and now you guys too, I want us to get to some of the other aspects of the story, Um and not get bogged down in why is there a serpent there? Although that is a really big question that we should ask. But like, again, yeah, I'm going to say my line, like the text is not concerned. just as the text is not concerned with us asking like, well, wait, how, how did God, you know, have light before, you know, it's, right. it's also not really interested in telling you how he got there, all that stuff. I mean, there, and, and, and as Calvin would say, there are other places that talk about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So what's really happening in the passage? If the main point of the passage isn't the origin of the serpent or Satan, what's really going on at a high level across the, 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 the arc of Genesis 3? Well, again, we're trying to ask and answer some fundamental questions. And so the question that's being asked and answered here is, what's wrong? Right? So we, we, had, we had, why am I here? Uh, or who am I? Would be the other way of saying that, you know, what's my purpose? And we've answered those. And now the question is, what's wrong? And so um, what's wrong begins with, well, you know what? You had an opportunity to serve God or not serve God. And here's how that played out. Mm -hmm. And it's not, and again, uh, what you just said there, you had an opportunity to serve God or not serve God. And that aligns with what is really the rebellion of Genesis 3. Because it's not, the, the illusion of the tree is not just like they ate the wrong fruit from the wrong tree. Right. It's that they are rejecting God's rule and reign and, and putting in place their own. Right, and that's, that's Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2 is God's rule and reign are just and they're good. And mm -hmm. so now here we are in chapter three, and we're going to have the first two humans say they're unjust, they're unjust, and they're not good. Yeah, and a, with a practical application of that being that immediately the created order is inverted here. 
God said, right. God told Adam and Eve, rule and reign over all things. In the animal and plant life, we saw the demonstration of that in Genesis 2 with Adam naming the animals, right? Kind of providing a taxonomy. That was, a, that was an outworking of that call. But then in Genesis 3, what's happening? No longer are they ruling and reigning, cultivating and subduing in God's way, in God's world. Now this serpent has put them at the bottom, right? So he's yeah. inverted the created order. He has put them in the position of he is now going to rule and reign over them through the temptation of the uh, of the false promise of becoming God, right? So yeah, so let's make sure we've traced that. So like God God reigns and rules, then he delegates reign and rule to the man and the woman. And then as we're going to see the man and the woman decide, no, I don't want my part. I want all of it. That's essentially what's happening, you know, when the when the fruit is eaten, um, and as a result of wanting all of it, they essentially get none of it. So they go from the highest place to the lowest place, and so of course that means that we will need uh, a, a human who can go to the lowest place and then be exalted to the highest place to make it right. Wow, just just snuck it in there, didn't oh. you? <laughs> Couldn't wait. Wanted to see your faces. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! A um, cup of coffee. <laughs> uh, so, so the rule and reign uh, of God is being rejected for the rule and reign of Adam and Eve. And it says, right, that it says, okay, well, so uh, Satan begins with the temptation that God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. He gets into conversation with them. Uh, and it goes on in verse four to say, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when that they saw the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. So here, I guess a question that I think emerges at this point is uh, when God, when when it says they will be like God, that's the promise. Aren't they already in the image of God? What is the allure of the promise? It doesn't read like if you're Adam and Eve, why is this alluring? What is there something that's going on that's maybe not just right here on the surface? If you're reading it and saying, well, I thought they were already like God. Yeah, this is the serpent offering that they can be like God in a way that they were not created to be. Uh, and so they were created to reflect God and the serpent offers that they could rival God. And that's what they choose. They choose to. Um, so if you, you think about what's offered here, it's um, it's that it's that would give them the knowledge of good and evil. Um, and apparently these the knowledge of good and evil is something that belongs only to God. Otherwise, it would be fine for them to have it. Uh, and so um, basically, this is the lure that we all face. Of, well, OK, I can look like God if I am if I'm gracious and just and merciful and uh, if I rule and subdue in the way that I've been designed to and if I'm fruitful and multiply in the way that he's designed me to do. Or I can set myself in the place of God and decide that I'm an omniscient and omnipotent, you know, all knowing uh, sovereign ruler of everything that I see, which is that's Nebuchadnezzar. If you're if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, that's exactly what he articulates is look at everything that I've created. Yeah, and then I, God takes him to the lowest place. Right. And, and it does seem like a it's almost like a it's a seizing of those incommunicable attributes, right? Yeah. It's like God has made us to where we can know, but we want to know everything. Right. God has made us where he's given us power so we can rule and reign, but we want to be omnipotent. We want to have all the power, right? right. God has delegated some rule to us, but we want to be sovereign. We want to mm -hmm. be over everything, right? And here's, here's how this will often be articulated by people. They'll say, well, if God is good, he wouldn't do X, Y, or Z. 
you know, I just don't believe that a good God would do X, Y, or Z and fill in the, fill in the blank. Do you hear what they're, what they're saying? You will become like God. Like, you know, if I were God, here's how I would run things Right. as though I hold all knowledge as though I hold all wisdom, you know? And so I think that's sort of the underlying thing behind that is I'm going to question the almighty because from my perspective, things should be different. That's right. Yep. So they reject God's rule and reign. They listen to the voice of the serpent. Another question that may be good to answer here, uh, why does the New Testament, and I'm kind of setting us up for, this is one of those questions that I'm asking for the sake of the listener. I just want to be clear, Jen, okay? I'm not, (laughs) not this is not a position I hold, but it is. Well, I can't com- see when I roll my eyes. So it's well, fine. I know, but I can see it. <laughs> um, so, uh, so it is often, whether it's jokingly said or it's asked as a genuine question, why is sin traced through Adam if Eve is the one who eats the tree? So, okay, like now, and I think this is important because of two things. One, when you look at the New Testament, you see, <laughs> oh gosh, I wish the listeners could see what's, what I see right now, uh, which is JT running away from, literally running away from the question. Um, but like, it's, uh, I think it's important for two reasons. One, because the text reads in a way that has Eve as, at least on the surface, the primary acting agent. The second reason it's important is because I don't know how many sermons I've heard on manhood that look at this passage and say the first the first sin was Adam's abdication of leading Eve. If I've heard that once, I've heard it 1,500 times. And how many times have you preached it? Not, not, a single uh-huh. time. <laughs> not a single time. I don't but, believe that. I do not believe that. But you, you, and, but you and I both know, you and I both know that you could throw a rock in evangelicalism oh, man. and hit a pulpit where a sermon has been preached <laughs> that says, um, hey, let me tell you something, fellas. The first sin in the garden wasn't Eve eating from the tree. It was Adam not leading his wife. Uh, that serpent, he should have pulled out his God-ordained sword and cut that head off. <laughs> <laughs> and everything would have been if Adam had just been a man, we wouldn't need Jesus. I mean, that's that's pretty much the point of those sermons. And so, but then you get to the New Testament, and where is that line of sin traced through? Well, and Adam all died. So what is who is what's the problem here? Is somebody really the direct participant? Is somebody really responsible here? The New Testament seems to be indicating Adam. The story seems to put Eve in a driver's seat. I mean, is there should we make too much of this, too little of this? What's going on? JT. What? Just say something. <laughs> I have thoughts, but you have to go first. I know I know you have thoughts, which remember this, hey. the last podcast we did is we decided that, that you know, there's sometimes when it's good to go before Jen because it means you're <laughs> going to get all the stu- stupid <laughs> out. No, <laughs> I don't want it, but what I don't want us to do, I don't want us to rehash all the, all the complementarian stuff. Right. But I do want us to talk about, the, I mean, it is important for us to ask, like, what, what happens if you assign more blame to Adam or more blame to Eve? Like, you know, there are some yeah. real problems with that. So let me get all the stupid out and then you can correct me here in a minute. Does that sound good? Okay. So, uh, I mean, one of the places we would want to go into the New Testament is Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 and following, leading up to chapter 6. Paul writes this. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all sinned. 
And now there's a few things that we should probably tease out there that we don't have time for, but one of the first things we need to tease out is sin is action, but sin is also nature. And so, so Paul isn't just saying that now we all sin in terms of action. He's saying now we all have a new nature underneath Adam. Now I think it's entirely possible and reasonable that Paul is referring certainly to Adam, the man, but also to Adam, the collective humanity found in Genesis chapter one and two. And that's not like some sort of huge jump. Keep in no. mind, Paul would have been well abreast of Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for Adam is literally communicating the, all of humanity. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. So it is important, though, that we do have, and I'm going to use a term that I, I know can be misused, but I do think Paul is using this term appropriately in Romans. Or he's not using the term, he's using the concept appropriately in Romans 5, but headship, that we do have a, a, a federal head. And if anybody doesn't like the term headship, then you also don't like what Jesus has done for us. Or maybe another term would be representative, that Adam is a representative for humanity, and Adam and Eve are representatives for humanity found in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. And also Christ becomes our representative, which is what he goes on to explain later in Romans chapter 5. He says, therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. And so what we see in Genesis chapter 3 and Paul's explanation of Genesis chapter 3 is because of the sin of humanity, there's now a new human whom we can be forgiven by, redeemed, and reconciled by. But it isn't that just Adam sinned. If you look later in the the pastoral epistles, specifically as Paul writes to Timothy, he also implicates Eve in this first mm-hmm. sin and talks about the relationship now between men and women because of Eve, Eve's uh, willful, disobedience, willful disobedience to God as well. Yeah, and I, and I think the point that JT just made, okay, keep this in mind. Federal headship is different than when you hear headship talked about in complementarian conversation. Right. And whether or not, uh, I don't, I think as it pertains to Genesis 3, I could say it like this. I am not concerned about the marital headship that may or may not exist between Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and 3. I am very concerned about the federal headship that Adam Adam represents as a biblical type over the whole of Scripture. And I think that's how this passage gets carried forward in the New Testament. Right. Jen ha- Jen has, Jen's given us a side eye right now, Kyle. Do you I'm see not, that side I eye? Not, <laughs> no, for I, sure. say, I, th- I love what Kyle just said because I think it's keeping the main point in in view. And so like, this is not a, this is not a, a it's not a discussion of marriage. I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't have anything to say about marriage, but it's talking about much, again, these are the opening chapters of the Bible. And for us to think that God's primary concern is to give us marriage counseling in the, in the foundational chapters of scripture. That's what I'm I'm looking for. (laughs) There are people who are never going to get married. So they're just going to ignore Genesis one through 11. It's nuts. Okay. But anyway, so which is not to say, that it doesn't have anything to tell us about the marriage relationship. But I think the, if those are the, the kinds of messages that you're hearing primarily about these texts, man, you're missing it because it's setting up a big story. Um, and, and so I think let's have a little pop quiz. Who committed the first sin? Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to uh, say... It's Eve. It's Eve. No. Yes, watch. I'll take you to First Timothy chapter yes. 3. Oh, my gosh. No. <laughs> no hey, if you get to do your little pop quiz games, I get to play my games, yeah, too. No, I think the correct answer is Adam and Eve. Yes, that is that is the correct answer. Who's in first? Adam and Eve. 
You know what? I was just, I was, it's hilarious that you just did this because I was talking to a friend of both of ours yesterday and she said, I think I know, know what you're talking about. Do you, do you, do you know what, do you know what Jen does all the time? She'll give you an either or question and then tell you the answer. <laughs> or neither. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I feel like you, is it this or have this? this long and still you do not know me? I know, right? Yeah. Okay, and but so, Jen, Jen, I think you're right. But like yeah, the, the no, I don't want to wait because what is going to be what is going to be in somebody's mind is this. First Timothy chapter 3. Uh, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Thanks for listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. For more information, you can look into the show notes in the podcast description. We'd be honored for you to leave us a podcast review on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast. You can find us online at trainingthechurch.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter by searching Knowing Faith. We'll see you next time. Grace and peace.